You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 4. We will read together the first 14 verses. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we gather around your word, and it is our pleasure to do so. We pray that in our study and our thinking and our consideration of these things that you may have the preeminence in the first place in our thoughts and in our hearts. We pray that you would give to us attentive and obedient hearts that we might honor you through obeying your word and through considering these things. We pray that beyond just the voice of a mere man that we may hear the voice of our God in the text of Scripture. Thank you for your word which is powerful and true and pure altogether. We thank you that we have the privilege to gather around it. We pray now, Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher and that your word would be our guide. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began chapter 4, and we noticed some of the differences between the woman at the well in chapter 4 and Nicodemus in chapter 3. And I gave you a list of differences um, beyond just the fact that one of them was a man and one of them was a woman. There are a host of differences. But the one thing that both people had in common, Nicodemus and the woman at the well, In spite of all of their differences, one being rich, one being poor, one being moral, one being immoral, one being a Jew, one being a Samaritan, in spite of all of those differences, there's one thing that both of them had in common. They both needed forgiveness. They both needed to be born again. And though the the language in chapter 4 is different than the language in chapter 3, the concept or the idea, the the point of the passages are the same. In Nicodemus, with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus used language about the new birth, being born again. Language that Nicodemus would have understood because of his familiarity with the Old Testament passages that spoke of the new covenant and the new birth and hinted toward that. But with the woman at the well, Jesus uses a different analogy, but with the same meaning. With the woman at the well, Jesus speaks of living water and him being the water of life and not thirsting anymore. Both of them needed forgiveness of sins. Both of them needed to be born again. But Jesus, using different language with each one, is communicating the same thing. He could just as easily have said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, what you need is living water. And he could have just as easily said to the woman at the well, what you need is the new birth. Because he is describing the same thing. Both Nicodemus 
and the woman at the well needed a new heart, a new life, a new spirit. They needed to be born again and they needed forgiveness. Now, Nicodemus didn't believe that. The woman at the well seemed to have got that. From everything we can tell from John chapter 3, Nicodemus walked away from Jesus still under the wrath of God, still having not believed, still walking in moral, intellectual, and spiritual darkness, still dead in his trespasses and sins, still in his unbelief. From everything we can gather from chapter 4, the woman at the well walked away from her encounter with Jesus, believing, having been born again, having been given the living water, being forgiven, no longer under the wrath of God, but now having eternal life. And everything she does seems to evidence that she was regenerated and she did trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Messiah. I have struggled all of this week trying to find a way to divide John chapter 4 up into what I call preachable chunks. And by preachable chunks, sometimes that's 10 verses, sometimes, well, seldom that's 10 verses, but sometimes it's bigger chunks. Sometimes it's one verse or even half a verse, but some sort of a division of thought. And I'm not sure why I have struggled so much with John chapter 4. I think it might be because this conversation is a little bit different than the conversation with Nicodemus. And here's what I have observed. In the conversation with the woman at the well, the dialogue between Jesus and the woman at the well seems to build on it. It's like building blocks, one upon another. And there is this analogy that is woven all the way through, and there's really no clear break. Because every time she says something, Jesus kind of takes what she says and adds to it a little bit, sort of wets her tongue, as it were, for a little bit more information, builds the curiosity, and she says something else in response to that. So it's a dialogue that is really woven together. I actually heard somebody, it was Tony Evans, preach this entire chapter in one sermon, verses 1 through 42. One sermon did the whole thing. Now, I am not in the least bit tempted to even try to do that, but at least I know that it can be done. And maybe he did that because it's so difficult to try and divide it up. So here's what we're going to do with John chapter 4. Every Sunday, this is going to seem a little odd to you, every Sunday I'm going to get up and I'm going to preach until the clock says to stop. And then I'm going to stop and we're going to pick it up again the following Sunday and just sort of take this all as one unfolding drama in John chapter 4. We noticed last week a bunch of place markers, a bunch of place markers, Judea, Samaria, Galilee that are mentioned in those first three and four verses. And we sort of located those on the the map of our mind, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, Samaria right in between. We located there the the well that is mentioned, Jacob's well, which is right at the base of two mountains, Mount Ebal to the north, Mount Gerizim to the south. Ebal and Gerizim were the mount of cursing and blessing, those two mountains separated by a little bit. Jacob's well right at the base of those two mountains, sort of looking out to the west. You remember there was the Mediterranean Sea up between the valley of those two. Modern-day Nablus is a city there. Down south would have been Judea, and up to the north would have been Galilee. And Jacob's well was right there at the base of those two mountains. It is interesting to notice how prominent Jacob's well figures into this whole encounter with the woman in John chapter 4. You'll notice that John mentions the well twice. See it in verse 4? He had to pass through Samaria. He came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. The well becomes the sort of the central feature of this whole conversation between the two of them. Not only is it an important meeting place, but it is also becomes an important analogy for this whole conversation because the first half of the conversation revolves around the subject of a bubbling, springing up well, and this well, Jacob's well, and the water, and the idea of thirst. And so Jesus takes the subject of this well, and he uses it as an analogy to teach a much deeper lesson to this woman. Uh, last week, after... 
the message, and I gave all the geography and all the fun part, the geography and the history, everything everybody enjoys so much. Uh, Peter Kemery came up to me afterwards, and he said that 25 years ago, uh, he and Evelyn, and Peter's sitting right up here, he and Evelyn were in Israel and got to visit Jacob's well. And he said that when you go down into the building, you actually go down 8 to 10 feet below the modern-day level of the ground. You actually descend because the dirt is built up so much around it through erosion and, of course, the wind blowing in and dust settling and all of that. So you actually go down kind of, as it were, I guess, into the basement of this building. And they still today have an apparatus there that you can use to sort of draw up the water. And he said the tour guide threw a stone down into the well because the well is about 100 feet deep. It was over 100 feet deep when Jacob dug it. The well is about 100 feet deep. He threw the stone down in there to show how deep that the well was because you could hear it hit the, the water in the bottom. And then the tour guide said, since it was the custom in Jesus' day to have the women draw up the water, would you, Mrs. Kemery, draw up a bucket full of fresh water for us to drink? And so she got to draw up the water and drink out of Jacob's, they got to drink out of Jacob's well. Isn't that incredible? Stuff like that just thrills me. I get holy spirit bumps on my arms when I think of that stuff because to think that you could, would be actually be able to sit next to and stand next to the edge of a well that Jacob dug and that Jesus sat at and that Jesus and the woman from Samaria drank out of and to be able to drink out of the same well that they drank out of. That to me is just incredible. It's awesome. So anyway, the well plays prominent place in this whole narrative in John chapter 4. In that whole area around Sychar and the area where Jacob's well is today, there are as many as 80 different springs. Now, not all of them were known in Jacob's day. Not all of those springs were known in Jesus' day. But Jacob dug a well right next to or right at one of those springs, and the depth of the well goes down far below the water table, and it goes down far enough that this spring, it's a freshwater spring, produces some of the cleanest and the clearest and the and the most pure water in that whole region. And it's a constant, year-round, abundant supply of water. And that's probably why Jacob dug the well there rather than using any of the other wells that would have been around that area. He would have wanted for his flocks and for his people his own well to provide water for all of those animals and for his people. So he dug a well there. And it sits on a parcel of ground, it says in John chapter 4, a parcel of ground that Jacob ended up giving to his son Joseph. And that parcel of ground is mentioned in Genesis chapter 48, verse 22, I think it is. I'm not going to ask you to turn back there. But it was a parcel of ground that Jacob purchased from the people in the land. And he purchased that piece of ground. And then in Genesis chapter 48, Jacob mentions the fact that he had bought that piece of ground and then that he had at some point, and Genesis doesn't record this other than Jacob's allusion to it, that he had to in some way take back that piece of ground by force, the use of a sword. So he must have lost it somehow, but he ended up taking it back, the land that was rightly his, and he dug a well on that piece of land. Now when Jacob got down to Egypt where Joseph was at, Jacob deeded that piece of ground to Joseph and gave it to Joseph. You remember Joseph asked that when he died and the people went up from Egypt that they would take his bones with him, which they did. When they left Egypt, they took the body of Joseph or his bones, brought it into the land of Israel and buried it on the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph. So this well was a matter of significance for both Jew and Samaritan because you'll notice later on in the passage, she asked Jesus, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? See, the Samaritans would have claimed Jacob as their father. The Jews would have claimed Jacob as their father. Both of them were right because both groups of people descended from Jacob. And so it was a, the well was a place of significance historically, archaeologically, and spiritually for both Jews and Samaritans. And so that is where they meet, at this well, a deep well, an abundant supply of fresh water. Why did the woman come all the way out of the city of Sychar, a half a mile journey away in the heat of the day, to draw water? 
probably because it was one of the purest, most refreshing wells in all of the area. It would have been worth the half-hour walk out to get water from this well. So the well is a prominent feature in the whole dialogue. Now I want you to notice we're going to finish verse all the way through verse 6 today. Before we get to Jesus being wearied from his journey, I want you to notice the time notation at the end of verse 6. It was about the sixth hour. Now see, details like that are significant, particularly in the Gospels when a Gospel writer notes the time of day that something happens. Because if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that not all the time, not every event, do they tell you what time of the day it happened. Sometimes they describe an event as taking place in the morning or in the evening. Sometimes they don't even tell you what time of day the event happened. Here, John gives us the approximate time that this happened. And I ask myself, why did he do that? Why did he do that? He doesn't do that for everything. He doesn't, other than telling us that it was at night when Nicodemus came, he doesn't tell us what time it was, nor does he tell us what time it was that Jesus cleansed the temple, or what time of the day he turned water into well, or what time of the day he met the disciples. John doesn't always give us time notation. So why here? Why does he mention it was about the sixth hour? A lot of ink has been spilt, not only as to the significance of the sixth hour, but also whether by sixth hour John meant noon or six o'clock in the evening. And it basically boils down to this. If John was using the Jewish way of reckoning time, then it was noon because the Jews counted time, the hours from sunup, which was usually approximately about six o'clock in the morning. So the sixth hour was kind of their way of designating midday, noon, about 12 o'clock, sixth hour. You start at six o'clock in the morning, the sixth hour brings you to noon. But if John is using the Roman way of reckoning time, which was similar to ours, then they would count the hours from either midnight or midday. So it wouldn't have been 6 o'clock in the morning because obviously it's the heat of the day. Jesus has spent some time traveling because he's tired. So it would have been then 6 o'clock p.m. And without getting into all of the fascinating arguments on both sides, which would put you to sleep on a wonderful 4th of July like today, I'm just going to simply tell you I think it was noon, not 6 o'clock in the evening. And here's a couple reasons why. Number one, I don't see any reason why we should think that John was using a Roman way of reckoning time because we don't necessarily know that that's what John would have done nor do we know that that was the standard way that writers reckon time, especially Jewish writers in that day. seems to me most likely that John would have done what Matthew, Mark, and Luke did, and that is reckon time with the Jewish system, which would have made it noon. Second, if it was 6 o'clock in the evening that it's getting dusk, almost dark by that time in that region, there wouldn't have been enough time for everything else that takes place in John chapter 4 to happen. For Jesus to have an extended conversation with this woman while the disciples walked into Sychar, bought some food, came back out, while she left the water pot, went, went into Sychar, and then Jesus taught his disciples about what was about to take place. And then the entire village, she has to have time to go into the entire village, gather up a group of people and say, hey, this man told me everything I've ever done. Come see if this might be the Christ, the Savior of the world. And then all of them go back out to the well where Jesus has an extended conversation with them long enough to convince them that he's indeed the Messiah. In which case, then they would ask him, would you stay with us for a couple of days, which Jesus did. And there's not enough time for everything else to take place in chapter 4 unless this was at noon and not at 6 o'clock in the evening. But if it is at noon, then it raises an interesting question. Why is this woman coming out to draw well uh, water from the well at noon? Genesis 24 and history shows that it was in the evening that women came to the wells to draw water. Women didn't come during the heat of the day. They didn't come during the middle of the day. You know when women came out to draw water? After everybody had come in and the family had sort of settled down and the dinner was served and all of the chores were done and people were resting at the house, after the heat of the day, right before dusk, ladies would make their way out to the well 
And there they would sit around the water cooler, as it were, and discuss the events of the day and talk about what was on Fox News and all of the political happenings and everything that was going on. And they would chit-chat and gossip and take care of every, all the day's business and find out how everybody was doing. All of that happened in the evening, not during the heat of the day, but in the evening after the heat of the day. So if this is at noon, why is it that the woman is coming out in the middle of the day to draw water? That is itself is an odd thing. And here is why I think John indicates that it was the sixth hour. It is not, the woman is not coming out to the well. Sorry, I should say say it this way. The woman coming out to the well is not an indication of what time of the day it is, that is evening. It is that time indication that it was the sixth hour that indicates to us the type of woman who was coming out to the well to draw water. What type of a woman was she? She was an immoral woman, we find out later, who had had five husbands and was living with one who was not currently her husband. She was, listen, to her own people, to everybody around there, religious and irreligious, she was a social pariah, an outcast in every way. This woman had known more than one experience of walking up to the well in the evening while all the ladies are are standing there, and as she approaches, hearing the conversation die down and all of a sudden go quiet. Because nobody would have acknowledged her, nobody would have talked to her, people would have shunned her. She was an outcast in every way. Now, if you want to avoid being shunned by a group of people and feeling that painful experience, that reminder of just how immoral you have been and just how distant you are from God, if you want to avoid that experience, what do you do? You avoid the people at the well. So if you're going to avoid the groups at the well, when is the best time to go out to the well? If not at 6 o'clock in the evening, when would it be? High noon. Now, that is why John tells us it was the sixth hour. It is an indication to us of just what type of a woman she was who came out to the well. She was an immoral woman who wanted to avoid the crowd, so she came at the time of day when she thought nobody else would be at the well. Now, that's what brought the woman to the well. Now, what is it that brought Jesus to the well? We have to go back up to the earlier part of verse 6. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. Now, that's one of those statements that deserves some of our reflection, our consideration, because that's one of those sentences that you and I read over. We don't give much thought to it, and we move right on into the rest of the passage without considering what it is that we just read. Jesus, being wearied wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. He was sitting by the well, and he was tired. He was exhausted. He was wearied from his journey. Now that phrase, that sentence, strikes me as odd. It strikes me as completely out of place from the whole context. He came up to the well. It was the middle of the day. The sun was out. It was hot. He had been walking all morning with his disciples, and he is exhausted. He's tired. And it seems to me that he's, in some way, more tired than the disciples because the disciples, all of them, go into town to buy food. Another half a mile walk in and a half a mile walk back. So they have spent all day carrying all of the stuff that a traveling band like that would have been carrying, their supplies, their clothes, and all of that. They spent the whole morning traveling, making good time. They arrive at the well, and Jesus sat down, and I can picture my Savior sitting at the well, his hair drenched with perspiration, sweat dripping off his beard, running down his neck, saturating his clothes. He is exhausted. He is breathing heavily. And he just needs a place to sit. Sit. Have you ever worked so hard or done something and exerted yourself to the point where you just have to sit down? I think Jesus, for some reason, was more tired than the disciples because they made the trek into town to buy food and then to bring that food back out to Jesus. The fact that Jesus was wearied, exhausted from his journey, to me, is more than just an interesting statement. It seems entirely out of place. And what do I mean by that? In John chapter 1, it says, The word 
was with God. He was in the beginning. He was with God, and he was God. And that word became flesh. That almighty God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And we refer to him as Jesus, who is now wearied from his journey. The word was weary. Is this the same omnipotent creator who just a couple chapters ago turned water into wine? An act of raw, omnipotent power? Is this the same one who, by an act of raw, omnipotent power, cleansed the temple and drove out all of the money changers and all of the animals in a display of omnipotence? Is this the one that John the Baptist said was came from heaven, who had the Spirit of God without measure, without, without boundary, and without limitation, and was himself the one whom the Father loved and had given all things into his hand? Is this the heaven-sent, spirit-filled, sovereign king of all of creation, who John says is wearied from his journey? That sound odd? That sounds odd to me. I wouldn't expect him to be wearied from his journey. And yet John does what John does so masterfully throughout the whole gospel. He describes for us the majesty of the Son of God in all of His glory and all of His deity, and at the same time describes that same individual as being fully man. Just this last week, almost and out of the blue it was, one of my children said, why is it that we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man? Why did He have to be fully God and fully man? And my answer to that was, because the Bible describes Him as being fully God and being fully man. And that's what we see in John. The Word was God, He became flesh, and He dwelt among us. He was fully God. But that omnipotence, that power, that deity, did not in any way hinder his experience of all the limitations of humanity itself. He was also fully man. Now in our day, we don't have to battle so much against people who deny the humanity of Jesus. Everybody seems willing to agree Jesus was a man. He came here, he slept, he ate, he lived, he died, etc. He walked around, he traveled, he was fully man. People are willing to concede that. He is 100% man. Where people have the hang-up in our day is that he was 100% God. That's what people can't understand. So we find ourselves battling against Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who deny the deity of Christ. In John's day, it was the opposite. In John's day, one of the earliest heresies to come up in the early church was the denial of the humanity of Jesus. They were willing to acknowledge his full deity but they could not reckon that with the humanity, and so they compromised the humanity of Jesus and said he wasn't fully man and he didn't really experience all that humanity experiences. They were known as Gnostics. And they believed in sort of a platonic way that anything material was immoral or wrong or bad or evil. So God could not touch or deal with any material object, let alone take upon himself a human body. And so they should say that Jesus appeared to be man, but he wasn't really man. He just appeared to be human. And that if you were walking, and I've used this illustration before, if you were walking next to Jesus on the seashore, you would see what appeared to be a man walking next to you, but he would leave no footprints because he was really just a spirit being. He just appeared or seemed to be human. And that's why in the New Testament we have sayings like this from John's epistle, chapter 4. Man, I forgot it just now. John chapter, first John, I'm going to say chapter 2 or chapter 4, where John says, every spirit that denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is not of God. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. But the spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that is the spirit of God. See, they were battling against people who denied his humanity. Here is a statement where John affirms his full humanity. He was exhausted. He was tired. 
How does the creator of all the universe experience exhaustion? How does the creator of all of the universe experience thirst? When Jesus asks for a drink, he's not just starting up a conversation with the woman. Hey, she's drawing water. I'll ask for a drink. Gotta break the ice. No, he was thirsty. He was sweating. And that's the reality of his humanity. He experienced everything that we experience without sin as human beings. He participated in humanity and he bore the weaknesses and the frailties and the infirmities of humanity. It is not sin to be tired. It is not sin to be weary. It is not sinful to be exhausted. It's not sinful to stub your toe and experience pain. Jesus experienced and suffered through all of the infirmities that we do as human beings. He partook of flesh and blood. He became just like his brethren, Hebrews chapter 2 says, in all things. So everything that is part and parcel of our humanity that is not in itself sinful, he experienced. Have you ever experienced thirst? Have you ever been so thirsty that your tongue feels like it's just going to crack in half? And your mouth is so dry. And you are parched. And the only thing you can think of is having a drink of water. That's all you want. Have you ever had that happen? Jesus had it happen. He was thirsty here. He was thirsty on the cross. Have you ever been so hungry that the only thing you can think of is eating? Did Jesus experience hunger? Yeah, he did. How many people here have gone 40 days without food in the wilderness? Anybody here gone 40 days without food? Say, if I raise my hand, I lose my reward. Now, you don't want to do that. Jesus did. He knew hunger. He knew what it was to have a callus, to get a blister, to feel sore muscles, to wake up with a crook in your neck, to sleep just wrong. You think that sleeping out on the road and camping out with the disciples and traveling from one town to the other, sleeping on a different mattress or a different bed or a different house every night, that he somehow avoided all of the experiences of humanity that you and I experience? He knew what it meant to get a blister. He knew what it meant to work so hard in the heat and so hot in the, under the heat that you just long to sit down in the shade for five minutes and take a break. He knew what it meant to experience uh, heat and to experience cold. He knew what it meant to experience the stiff muscles and the stretched muscles and cramps. He knew what it meant to grow up and to experience growing pains. He knew what it meant to experience all of that. None of those things are sinful things. Everything that it meant to be human, everything that it meant to be human, that was not sinful, and that was not related somehow to being married, because Jesus was never married, but every experience of suffering, every experience of temptation, everything that you and I experience by by way of weakness and frailty and inabilities, he experienced. Could Jesus bench bench press 10,000 pounds? No, he couldn't, could he? Why? Because he was just a, a Jew, maybe five and a half, six feet tall at the most. He was just an average Jew. He was a man. Couldn't he bench press 10,000 pounds? His humanity limited the omnipotence of his deity. You know what's marvelous about this, this experience that he was wearied from his journey and sat thus by the well and had to ask this woman for water? Could Jesus have created water to quench his thirst? He could have. That occurred to me this last week. He could have created water. Just back in John chapter 2, he created wine out of water, which is an act of creation. And he created not just a little bit to quench somebody's thirst, but he created an abundance of it, six water pots full of it, probably 150 to 180 gallons of wine for this uh, festival, this marriage celebration. He had the ability to create that. He could have at the well scooped up dust and by an act of his will, without a word spoken, turned it into the most refreshing, purest, cleanest, coldest water that your lips have ever tasted. He could have done that, but he didn't. Now later on, the woman says to him, you don't have anything to draw water out of the well with, and the well is deep. How do you expect to get this water? Was that a problem for Jesus? 
No, he could have created a bucket out of thin air and a hundred feet of rope to drop down into the well had he wanted to or had he desired to. Now he sent the disciples away into the city to buy food. Did Jesus need to buy food? Or could he create food out of thin air? He could have turned the stones into bread, could he not? Yeah, he could have. In John chapter 6, just two chapters later, he feeds the multitude 5,000 with five barley loaves and two small fish. An act of creation where he created food out of thin air to feed a multitude. So here's the interesting thing. Between John chapter, in John chapter 6, he creates a feast of food. In John chapter 2, he creates a feast of beverage. And sandwiched in between that is our Lord who is both thirsty and hungry. John chapter 4. Isn't that marvelous? Now, just as an aside, and I don't know if the disciples ever thought like this, but by the time you get to John chapter 6 and watch him t- um, creating food for the 5,000 people, if I was a disciple sitting around the campfire one night, I would have said to one of the other disciples, you know, I don't know why we are going into the village to buy food and drink if this man has the ability to create these things out of thin air. We're going to have to have a talk with him. The point being that Jesus did not lack the power to quench his own thirst, but he didn't. Now, why didn't he? Do you know that Jesus never performed a single miracle that was for his own comfort? Never performed a single miracle that was for his own comfort. Why not? Why did he not alleviate his pain? Why did he not alleviate his thirst? Why did he not alleviate his hunger? One reason is because it was the Father's will for him to not do those things and to experience all that we experience in our human condition. A second reason was because it was his own will to experience all that we experience in our human condition. If you've ever been so thirsty and you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I am so thirsty, I need a drink of water right now. Now, If he had never experienced thirst, he would have no idea what you're talking about, would he? He would never have learned that by experience. But he experienced hunger, he experienced thirst, he experienced disappointment, he experienced pain, he experienced temptation, he experienced sleepless nights, he experienced being so tired during the day that he needed a nap. He took one in the back of a boat during the middle of a storm, do you remember that? He experienced all of those things. Why is it? Why did Jesus never perform a miracle for his own comfort? So that he might enter into our experience and that he might learn by experience what being a human was all about. So that when you go to the Lord, you know that you are approaching a God and a king and a friend and a brother and a savior and a high priest in heaven who knows exactly what you are experiencing because he himself has experienced it. There is nothing, no temptation, no suffering, no experience that you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I hate this. I'm enduring this. This is horrible. I don't want this. That he cannot at the same time say, I understand that entirely because I have been right there. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 is all about. Hebrews chapter 4 says, we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, being all points tempted as we are. And therefore, the author says, let us go boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because we have a God in heaven who knows exactly what we've experienced. There's nothing I can ever say, Lord, I'm going through this. I need your help. To which he would respond, I have no idea what you're talking about. Never experienced that. I've never had to deal with that. No matter what it is, we know that we have a Savior who is not cold, he is not indifferent, he is not aloof, he is not unsympathetic to what we are going through, because he's gone through it. That is what it means to have a Savior King who is both God and man. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says this, He to whom sinners are bid to come for pardon and peace is one who is man as well as God. He had a real human nature when he was upon the earth. He took a real human nature with him when he ascended up into heaven. We have at the right hand of God a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, 
because he has suffered himself being tempted. When we cry to him in the hour of bodily pain and weakness, he knows well what we mean. When our prayers and praises are feeble through bodily weariness, he can understand our condition because he knows our frame. He has learned by experience what it is to be a man. Think about that. He has learned by experience what it is to be a man. God is never indifferent, never aloof, never distant, never unsympathetic. Because our mediator knows what the human frailty and human condition is. He learned it by experience. J.C. Ryle again said, The Lord Jesus in whom the gospel bids us to believe, and this I love, He is without doubt Almighty God, equal to the Father in all things, and able to save to the uttermost all those that come unto God by Him. But at the same time, this Jesus is no less certainly perfect man, able to sympathize with man in all his bodily sufferings, and acquainted by experience with all that man's body has to endure. Power, that is his deity, and sympathy, that is his humanity, are marvelously combined in him who died for us on the cross. Because he is God, we may repose the weight of our souls upon him with unhesitating confidence. And because he is man, we may speak to him with freedom about the many trials to which flesh is heir, because he knows the heart of man. So let's go to that Savior now. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for such a perfect perfect advocate, such a perfect high priest, and such a perfect Savior. Knows all of our condition, knows all of our weaknesses, our frailties, and our inabilities, and our limitations. We thank you that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, our trials, and our temptations. What a perfect Savior we have. We thank you that he endured all of these things and that he can sympathize with us. We pray that this truth may be pressed upon our hearts, that we may draw near to your throne of grace and find the grace that is able to help us in time of need. Thank you for your goodness to us and thank you for a Savior that knows what it means to be weary and to need refreshment. We thank you in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.